There we go. Somehow I don't quite feel together today. I don't know what the deal is. Maybe by the halfway through my sermon, I'll have it together. Good to see you all. And uh, been enjoying the weather and the beauty of our area. My son comes out from Saskatchewan from time to time. And he's just kind of amazed we're driving down the streets. He just says, it's so lush around here. And going, yep, it is. It's uh, quite a great place to, to live for sure. Uh, we're continuing with our journey series in, uh, in the book of Luke, and we're all the way to chapter 18, and uh, this is called Straight Out Prayer. Uh, so this is, Jesus is actually kind of redirecting our understanding of prayer, and he's dealing with, um, I guess, what society thinks about prayer or what a lot of people misunderstand about prayer. So he's going to be redirecting and maybe re-educating us in his, uh, the message today. First 14 verses in this, in this book. Have you ever had trouble communicating with people? Uh, here, do I get a, an amen on that one? <clears throat> I mean, husbands and wives are always having trouble. Seems like you know, text messages make things worse. Uh, uh, this last week, I, I saw my neighbor uh, at the mailboxes in my uh, townhouse complex and said, hey, we should get together. What are you doing on Friday? He says, uh, oh, I don't know. I'll check with my wife. I'm going, <clears throat> you got to check with your wife about what you're doing on Friday. Maybe she has a list. I haven't seen him since Christmas. And I thought, well, let's just catch up. I know he's got a flexible schedule. His wife and my wife both are teachers and they work on, at school. So I, um, I just wanted to get together with him. And I sent him a text message a day or two later. I said, hey, can you come out and play on Friday? And um, he writes back and says, well, my wife's really busy, and uh, she's really stressed about year-end school, and she's got report cards, and maybe in a couple of weeks. And I wrote back and says, I wasn't inviting your wife. <laughs> I just thought maybe we could get together and have coffee and catch up. Oh, I just assumed that she went both of us going, no. Well... I, don't, I often, too, I, I email people a very specific question, and I get a reply back by email, and they don't even answer the question. And I have to reply to the reply and answer the, ask the question a second time in order to get it. And sometimes I, I go three rounds to get the answer I'm looking for. It's, then when you add in, say, culture uh, to the, the communication, and the nuances of culture where not only is there a language issue perhaps, but an unspoken cultural assumptions or traditions or manners that come into play, it gets kind of confusing. In a couple of churches ago where I was pastoring overseas, I went to visit a, a home of Nigerian family. And uh, he, the husband was one of our deacons in the church. And I thought I'd get to know them. I went into the living room. This is one of my cultural educational experiences. And uh, I saw a family photo on their living room wall. The, the, the parents and the three kids, and they were all standing there like this. And I said, I shouldn't have. But I said, they don't look very happy. And uh, she didn't talk to me for six months. That she, in fact, she thought about leaving our church. Because that was so offensive. No, in our culture, smile for the camera, everyone smile. That's what we do for photographs, but in other countries, smiling isn't a thing. They just take a picture, take a picture. 
And I learned uh, to be, you know, you can't always get it right. And I, t- I t- often tell people, look, I don't know your culture. Teach me, help me to learn. But we're, I'm going to get it wrong a lot of times. Help me to learn how to communicate, how to express what I'm trying to do. So when, when we come to praying, I think that there's sometimes misunderstandings or there is um, expectations that we come or assumptions that we come to with prayer. But too often we forget to check with God about what He is wanting in prayer. We, we just come to Him with our preconceived notions on prayer, what we think prayer is all about, and we assume things with God that perhaps are not true. So Jesus is going to hit two different assumptions in the two different stories that we're going to look at today. So, so far in the journey to Jerusalem uh, from Luke chapter 9, Jesus has given instructions and teaching stories, rebukes, challenges to his disciples and other listeners. Chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Prayer. He introduces prayer, talks about uh, a friend coming at midnight, uh, and relating it to uh, prayer as well, promises about asking and seeking and knocking, that you, when you do ask and seek and knock, you will find what you're looking for. The doors will be open to you. Questions will be answered. And so in Luke chapter 18, he's circling back another shot at prayer to try and help us get a better understanding of what it is from God's perspective. So assumption number one uh, is this. When we pray, sometimes we think we can do a one-and-done prayer. If we ask God for something, we can forget about it and go on our merry way, assuming that God will take care of it. Any of you? uh, Don't have to raise your hands. I just know it's so. (laughs) And so Jesus tells us this story. Beginning of chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a story about how they could keep on praying and never give up. In a town, there was a judge who didn't fear God or care about people. In that same town, there was a widow who kept going to the judge and saying, make sure that I get a fair treatment in court. For a while, the judge refused to do anything. Finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about people, I will help this widow because she keeps on bothering me. And if I don't help her, she will wear me out. Good for that widow. The Lord says, think about what that crooked judge said. And won't God protect his chosen ones who pray to him day and night? Won't he be concerned for them? He will surely hurry and help them. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find on this earth anyone with faith? So in this story, Jesus is kind of he's comparing and contrasting a corrupt and heartless judge with a loving father. He's saying, if a guy who has no compassion whatsoever will finally give in to a persistent widow, how much more would your heavenly Father run to help you out whenever you come before Him? This persistence in prayer is it's not, not to get God's attention or to annoy God into submission, but it's to demonstrate our willingness to come before Him until an answer comes one way or another. So what's the difference between saying a quick prayer one time or praying for something every day until an answer comes? Which one do you think requires more faith? I was thinking about this and I thought, well, maybe, maybe if you just say a quick prayer and tr- trust that God's going to deal with it, eventually you can just forget about it. Maybe that requires a lot of faith. Just 
trusting God to take care of things. But then I started thinking about what Jesus is saying. Like maybe, maybe the persistence is what requires more faith. Maybe when you spend time persistently before God, sometimes he shows you, shows you something you weren't expecting. My dad, my dad had a son who was a bit wayward. It wasn't me. He had four sons. It wasn't me. And this son was quite annoying. I remember I'd never seen my dad get so angry in my life until one day my, my brother pushed every button he could. My dad was, gonna, he was so angry. He was like, I thought he was going to literally throw my, son, my brother out the window uh, in, the, in the kitchen. He was, he was like, one more, one more word would have been too much. Well, my dad prayed for my son and prayed, sorry, for my brother and uh, prayed, and prayed, and prayed. And finally, and he kept praying, God, change my son. God, change my son. God, deal with my son. God, work in my son's heart. And finally, God says, it's not the son's problem. It's yours. He needs a different dad than what you've been to him. You need to step into his world and figure out what he needs. My dad stayed long enough in the presence of God over a matter of days and weeks and months that God finally got a hold of his heart. You see, if he just said, God, fix my son, and went on his way, he never would have really figured out what the real issue was. Maybe there's a relationship among your family or friend group that is strained. Do you think maybe throwing a quick prayer, God, fix this relationship, is going to do it? Maybe God has something he wants to do in your heart. Maybe over time, every morning, every evening, the, the times you bring this relationship before God, he may give you a solution, an answer, a way forward that you never would have considered. But throw in a quick prayer up to God, say, God, fix this situation. It's not going to cut it. Sometimes prayer requires a bit of a struggle before God can show you a solution. Maybe it's not God's attention you need to get, but God needs to get your attention in your time of prayer. What if there's a situation at your kid's school that's stressful and needs persistent prayer? Maybe there's something that's really bothering you. Maybe something's not quite right at the school, and it, 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 it grates on you, and you, something has to happen, but you don't want to be a sore thumb or a squeaky wheel and an annoying person. You want God to bring about a solution, so you pray, you pray, you pray. And then maybe God will reveal something to you that you never before considered. Sometimes prayer requires persistence before an answer will come through. And I also think that maybe Jesus is saying that God wants to know how serious you are in your prayer times. Do you really? Does it really matter? How, how much does this matter to you? How much are you willing to, how much effort are you willing to put into this prayer to see him answer? Maybe, maybe Jesus wants us to take our prayer time more seriously. Too often I think our prayers are more done flippantly or haphazardly, or in, but not intentionally or persistently and faithfully. So God sees our heart when we come before him. He sees whether we're really, really wanting him to invest and, and change the situation or step into the, the circumstance 
make a difference where people's hearts are hard or they're going in the wrong direction. His spirit can come to bear in that in his time and in his way. You think the, 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 the father of the prodigal son said one prayer and said, God, you know, God, uh, bring my son home safe and then forgot about it. I think it says he's, he was standing out looking every day hoping that boy would come home. I think he'd never stop praying for that son. And he saw the answer in the end. Luke 18, uh, 18.7 says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He'll quickly come to our assistance when we pray. But I do think he's wanting to know, are you actually serious about what you're saying? Do you know what you're praying for? Maybe in your prayer time, when you're coming before him, he's going to tweak what you start praying for. Maybe he will, you will find after a week or two that your prayers are changing. And what's happening is God is changing your heart to be like his. He's wanting you to pray like he wants to answer. We want to pray him to answer this way. And he's saying, actually, I've got something else in mind that will make a, a much bigger difference. And then there's a curious verse in verse 8. It seems out of place. But I think Jesus has always got in the back of his mind his second coming. He's always thinking about when he's coming back. And he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Another translation says, when, 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 Jesus, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find anyone who's remained faithful? I take this to mean that when he comes back, you know, it's going to be a long absence, right? And... and Sometimes when someone's gone a long time, you kind of start forgetting. You might even forget what they look like. You might forget about the sound of their voice. You, you have some vague remembrances, but if they're gone like years, uh, you have to kind of get renewed. And, and I think that he's realizing humanity uh, has got a really short attention span. How long did it take the people of Israel once they were freed from Egyptian slavery? How long did it take them before they made a golden calf to worship? Was it weeks, a month, three months? Wow. About three months after they left Egypt, they're creating a golden calf to bow down and worship. Says, let's make this our God. Talk about a short attention span. Like in Noah's day and like in Lot's day, they just forgot about God altogether. They, they went on their own way. And I think Jesus is saying, you know, sometimes people are looking for the visible over the invisible. They want the practical over the spiritual. They want the things they can understand over what is beyond their understanding or the sensory over the sacred. That's why these new, newly freed Israelite slaves started worshiping a golden calf they created. They wanted to see something. They wanted to bow down in front of something. What's with this God we never see, we never hear? That's why the Israelites in the promised land, when they finally made it to the promised land, they started abandoning God and chasing after idols and worship practices of their neighbors, bowing down and worshiping what they could see. Our God, the one we come to, requires faith, not sight. He requires trust, not proof. And the trust and the faith bring about the response from God. So Jesus wonders by the time he returns, how many who started well in the faith will have a long who will have long since abandoned their faith or stopped reading their Bible or stopped praying to God or stopped investing in the kingdom of God. 
stopped caring about going to church and follow after the world's ways, the society's priorities, Satan's enticements? Will he find perseverance of the saints? Will he find faithful ones? Jesus is saying, persevere. Stick to it. And you're going to see an amazing things. Don't say some quick prayer and walk away. Stay there in God's presence day after day and let him transform your heart and your life and your attitude and things about you so he can move in an incredible way in your life. But what's the second assumption? The other assumption that I think people have is that we can actually impress God. Somehow people think that what we can do, our actions, our good deeds are impressive to God. We think somehow God will be pleased with our things we do more than with our character. And the story that he tells is about a Pharisee who is a religious leader, call him a pastor, call him a, a longtime Christian, whatever you want, religious person, versus a sinner, a tax collector, a publican, someone well known to be uh, immoral, unethical, a cheat, a scam, uh, someone everybody hated. So you got the righteous person and you got the most hated person and they both come to the temple to pray. Verse 9, Jesus tells a story about people who thought they were better than others and who looked down on everyone else. And two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood over by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not greedy and not dishonest and unfaithful in marriage like other people. And I am really glad that I'm not like that tax collector over there. I go without eating two days a week and I give you one-tenth of all I earn. Basically, he's saying, God, look how amazing I am. Look at how good I am, how spiritual I am. Look at all the things I'm doing for you. Unlike these lazy, distracted, worldly, half-hearted, do-nothing Christians around me, so grateful I'm not like that good-for-nothing excuse for a human being over there who only cares about himself. I follow all the spiritual disciplines. I donate my lightly used clothing. I keep my yard tidy. What a good boy am I. This fellow was not looking for justification or forgiveness from God. He was looking for a pat on the back or maybe extra blessings or favor from God. Jesus is saying, I think he's saying, this happens all the time. People coming before God trying to impress him, trying to get favor, saying, look how good I am. I imagine that God responded with something like, yes, but do you love anyone other than yourself? Do you actually know what compassion for others is? Do you have any experience in showing grace? To another person? Have you ever put the needs of anyone else ahead of your own? Would you even break your weekly spiritual routine to help out a brother or sister in need? It's all about me, 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 I, I, I. Some people don't get it. This man had assumed he knew what God was looking for. He assumed that God was wanting him to be perfect and do all these good works when, when he didn't give a rip about his neighbor. There's a clear miscommunication. He was not listening for what God wanted to see. And he presented to God a heart attitude that was unacceptable, was actually rejected by God. And when Jesus says, look, 
the tax collector, he comes and he stands, he doesn't even come close to the altar, he doesn't come close to the holy place, he just stands like against the wall, doesn't lift up his head, he, he doesn't think he's good enough to even come close to the place where everyone else is, and he says, uh, he says, uh, God? He actually, the Bible says he went, God have pity on me. I'm such a sinner. He pounded his chest. That's all it says in the scripture. One line doesn't bring out a list of good deeds. He just realizes who he is in the presence of God. He had a fairly clear communication with God because he came in humility and weakness, admitting his spiritual condition was a mess, seeking forgiveness. And he found it. He heeded the voice of the Holy Spirit, which brought him to repentance for what he had done to others. There are times, I, I will admit, I, I wonder sometimes if people, some people, actually have a conscience at all. Like psychopaths, like those who perpetrate genocide like mass murderers or Ponzi scheme builders, scam artists ripping off people of their life savings, people with truly evil intentions like those involved in human trafficking and drug dealing. Is their conscience kind of seared beyond repair or can God break through to their heart? Somehow he broke through to Zacchaeus a chief tax collector, one who was ripping off everybody, probably ripping off everyone else that worked for him. God's love broke through. I have to have hope that even these kinds of people can be redeemed, that God can break through and reach their heart at some point. I do believe that they have to face the, or the consequences of their sin, but when the Spirit of God breaks through into a person's heart and brings them to realization of the devastation and harm they've done to others, there has to be room for forgiveness and reconciliation. We must put away our judgy, critical attitude and welcome them into the church cautiously as repentant brothers and sisters because God only knows their heart. So Jesus is speaking directly against arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency, critical heartlessness and judgmental attitudes. He reminds us again to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are fellow travelers on this journey. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is really a fantastic passage. 9 to 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love that line. Such were some of you. It means that there's hope. The people can come to repentance and find forgiveness and find restoration when they've lived a life contrary to God's plans. 
People who were once enemies of Christ become, can become brothers and sisters in the Lord. So Jesus says in verse 14, when the two men went home, it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who was pleasing to God. And if you put yourself above others, you will be put down. But if you humble yourself, you will be honored. So who does the putting down and the honoring in this verse? Uh, let me re rephrase this passage, and I'll say it this way. The one who exalts himself before God, God will humble. The one who humbles himself before God, God will honor. The Pharisee was a much more moral person. Truly, he was good. He was righteous in his own eyes. He did everything right, but his heart was wrong. Whereas the, 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 the sinner, the tax collector, he did everything wrong. He was immoral. He was unethical, but his heart got changed. And that was God, what God looking for. Not self-righteousness, but God's righteousness. So way too often, people come to church and try to impress other people. They want to appear righteous and good with no problems, no issues, no hang-ups. Their self-righteousness or their righteous facade, you know what a facade is? Some of you, have you ever looked at architecture? You can go through Europe and different places, and they take a building that's really boring, mostly bricks, and they create a beautiful uh, uh, front to it. They, they, it's totally separate, and they, they build this amazing, ornate, carved stone edifice in front of it, so it covers over the boring parts. It makes it look, you look at it and go, this is incredible. I'm going, yeah, it's just about three feet thick before the boring parts. People like to put up this amazing facade looking okay. It makes it look fantastic. And as a pastor, I actually hear a lot of stuff. People tell me things from different interactions they have, and, and I kind of know what's going on in a lot of the homes or in the marriages or with the kids and the frustrations that are happening at the job and that kind of stuff. And, and when I say, how are you doing? Great, pastor. I'm going, mm-hmm, yeah, facade, mm. I don't always know stuff, and that's okay. I don't need to know stuff. But you know, it helps me know how to pray for you if I know what's going on. I, I, if, you, if you're actually open and honest and transparent about your needs, what, what's happening, I can help. I can, I can go on my knees each morning. Our staff can be praying for you and your family and your job situation. We can, the elders can come, and we can actually come to your home and pray with your family if we need to. We are all about uh, bringing the power of God into play with our, our church. Luke, nine, uh, sorry, Luke 11, back a few chapters, and I tell you, keep on asking, you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door is going to be open. This is persistence. True prayer gives us proper perspective in relation to God. True prayer brings us face to face with the holy, with the mighty, with the powerful, with the loving God who responds to the humble and the penitent person with grace. 